Psalm 87, we're looking at verses uh, 1 through 7. Let's give our attention to God's word. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The Bible says that all men are like grass and that all of man's glory is like the flower of the field and that grass withers and flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we talk about it more tonight. Heavenly Father, we do, we stop for just a minute and we ask of you that you would be here with us and that you would do great work. Father, we... We need you to be at work for your word to impact us. Father, would you please be at work by your spirit in spite of our, uh, in spite of our distracted hearts and minds? And would you take your word and would you cause it to, uh, to sink into our hearts so that we might hear and believe? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, I actually read a news story that wasn't about something purely awful, which is, imagine that, right? That was kind of refreshing. And it was actually about two high school students that are best friends. They're from Arkansas, a guy named Brandon Qualls and Tanner Wilson. And Brandon uh, is in a wheelchair, and he has always had... Uh, just sort of the basic hand-operated model, right, where you have to, you know, move yourself. You've got to turn the wheels yourself. But he's always wanted, he's always dreamed of having a nice electric wheelchair uh, so that he doesn't get so worn out through the course of the day. And obviously his best friend, Tanner, uh, being his best friend, knows that. And so with, without Brandon having any idea, his best friend, Tanner, took every dime that he earned at his part-time job for two years and saved it. And just the other day, presented him with a brand new electric wheelchair. Just because he loves him. Isn't that a beautiful story? It's a beautiful story. And I want you to, like, can you imagine being Brandon and having that moment where you, where you have that realization that this person, whom you, you know he loves you, right? Your best friend. But because of what you see, because of what happens, you have this realization that his love for you, it, it's way bigger than you'd realize. Have you ever had an experience like that? Uh, it made me think of when we started having kids. And when you start to have kids, you begin to realize very, very quickly the magnitude of, of what it means to, to love a child, right? The sacrifice that, is just going to in, that it's going to entail and that sort of stuff. Um, 
And then at some point you sort of realize, it dawns on you, oh, this is what my parents did for me. And you kind of, I can remember having this sort of, in a sense, new, like I know my parents love me. You kind of have this experience of, what, wow, it's, it's, it's bigger than I thought. It's deeper than I realized. And I think that's what this psalm is about. Uh, there are a lot of different ways we could, you could sort of look at the psalm in, in some sense. But I think this psalm helps us to feel the love of God in, in a bigger and deeper way. This semester we're studying through the Psalms, and our theme is dealing with feeling, with our feelings. Because the Psalms are songs, right? And we say every week that, right, what songs traffic in emotion, right? They help us to understand our emotions. They can help us express our emotions, what we feel. They can even shape how we feel. And the Psalms do the same thing. And Psalm 87, I think, helps us to feel the love of God. And it does so by looking again, like we did last week in in Psalm 84, at the city of Zion, which is uh, Jerusalem, right? Where uh, in the Old Testament, where uh, where God's people would gather at the temple and where he would meet with them, where they would worship. And so tonight, I want you to see three things about Zion from this psalm. Uh, Those three things. First, we're going to see how God feels about Zion. Secondly, I want you to see who God brings into Zion. And thirdly, we're going to see how God brings people in to Zion. All right, so first, how God feels about Zion. Uh, If you were here last week, uh, you know that we looked at um, Psalm 84, and it was basically about how, how the psalmist loved Zion, loved being with God and his people worshiping right at the temple. Um, He loved being there more than any place or anything else in the world. And what we see in this psalm uh, is actually that God actually loves it too more than anything else. That he loves his people being gathered and worshiping and he loves being with them. Verse two, look what it says. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. And this might be, in a sense, the most obvious point you've ever heard at RUF. But I I want to try to think about it fresh. I want you to hear it, that God loves his people. He loves being with them more than anything else. All throughout the Bible, the way that, uh, you know, for the psalmist, the Old Testament... The way the Bible talks about how God loves his people, it's really amazing and in some ways shocking language. Um, Zephaniah 3, 17 and following, it talks about, you get the picture of God singing love songs over his people. The way way a husband would sing over his wife, maybe. Um, It talks about God's love for his people in terms of a father's love for uh, his children. It talks about God's love for his people um, as his, as his uh, prized treasure, his possession that makes him feel rich. And what you see here, right in the, in the second verse, is that God really does love his people. He doesn't just tolerate his people. He doesn't just 
allow them to exist and, you know, things are okay between us. He actually loves his people. A friend of mine, this was years ago, but a friend of mine in Oxford was sitting in a local coffee shop and this uh, sort of older gentleman came up to him and just struck up a conversation and he said, son, uh, if you don't mind, can I ask you you something like, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And he said, well, actually I do. And he said, well then, he said, I'm so glad to hear that. Then do you know that God, God has a picture of you in his wallet and he walks around heaven showing it to everybody because he loves you. And I look, that might, like, does God actually do that? I, I don't think so, but, and that is potentially somewhat corny as that might be. I think the sentiment of that is exactly the right picture, right? Of a, of a proud father. Right? If you ask me about my kids, like, hey, well, tell me about your kids. Like, well, how much time do you have? Right? Hey, look at these guys. You know, let me show you pictures. Why? Because I love them. And I'm proud of them. And I want you to, I want you to know about them. Right? That's the picture that we get here. God really does love his people. And look, that might tend to slide. In some ways, that might tend to just kind of slide right past you. Um, maybe especially if you grew up in the church. Maybe not. But it might be one of those things that you just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right, God loves me, of course. But if, if so, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about who or, or what Zion really is. Because Zion or Jerusalem, Israel, God's people, however you want to talk about it, they're actually not a very lovely people. In fact, it's really the opposite. Their track record in the Old Testament is actually terrible. Terrible. Right? They, they're regularly worshiping other gods. They're regularly doubting God. Right? God saves them. He brings them out in the Exodus. And you get the impression that they're out there for like an hour. Right? They've just been saved from slavery. Amazing miracles. And they're out there for, it seems like, just a few minutes. And they're like, yeah, there's no water. God, he just wants to kill us. It's really astounding. Um, there's one passage in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 21 tells about King Manasseh. Now, he was king in Judah, which is where Jerusalem, uh, where Jerusalem was, is. Uh, and for a while, uh, it says that... So this is about an Israelite king, okay? Or Judan king, but you get the idea. And it actually says that he led God's people so far astray from God that they were actually worse than the nations around them. This king led his people into worshiping a false god called Molech who um, was all about child sacrifice. This guy sacrificed his sons and encouraged Israelites to sacrifice their children to a fake god. And God comes along and says, you people are worse than people that don't worship me or don't even, you know, pretend to. So for God to love Zion, it's actually an amazing thing. And and what it does is it it shows us that God really does love his people by grace. Uh, Like we said last week, for us today, right, because of what we see in the New Testament, right, there's no, there's no temple today. Um, but the, what's called the temple in the New Testament is actually the church, right? 
Zion's a picture of the church. It's God's people. So how do we apply that? Basically, you've got to, we've got to keep in mind that this is a picture of us. That God really does truly love his people. And the only way that you and I are going to find that wonderful at all uh, is if we know, is if we really believe and know the truth that we're not naturally a lovely people. Um, but God's love is still true. And it really is by grace. And it really is for free. And we're going we're gonna to pick up on that uh, for the rest of the sermon in, in just a minute. But I want to give you one other quick thought application from this. Did you notice that it says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. That's kind of curious. What does that mean? Well, it's basically saying that as much as God loves his people, and as much as he loves them when they're just sort of scattered about in their own individual homes, right across the land, that there's actually something unique. There's something very particular about when they are gathered together. That... That there's something about that that he uniquely loves. And that his love is manifest there in a very particular way. That he finds, that he finds this unique delight in his people gathered together as a, as a body. And so again, for us, that's the church, right? That God's love is present in and, and felt in. Right? That's what our sermon's about. Feeling God's love. And it's experienced in a a special way when his people are gathered together as and in the church. So I think the application is pretty simple. If, If you're looking to experience the love of God, if that's something you want, no matter who you are, if you're a believer and that's something that you want to experience afresh again this week, or if you're not a believer and this sounds good to you and you're like, I... I think I would, I'm interested in experiencing God's love. Then, then it makes sense, right, to find it in the place where he has said it would be, which is in the church. And now look, that might need a thousand qualifications, right? I'm not saying that it's the church that saves you. Because only Jesus saves you. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you don't experience God's love outside of church. I'm not saying that. But if you want to experience and feel, feel God's love, then it only makes sense to put yourself in the context in which he said it would be present, which is the church. So yes, the church with all of its problems. But if that's what you want, then you need to find an actual local expression defined body of God's church, a local church. That's where he said he would be. That's where his love dwells. And look, you can't, this is a longer conversation. We can talk about it sometime. But RUF, look, RUF is, we say, the church ministering on campus. In one sense, RUF is very much the church, right? We are a part of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. And we are the church ministering on campus. But RUF large group, this is not your church. Okay? Don't, again, longer conversation, but I don't want you to confuse the two. 
Hope you find and, and become connected with a church. All right, we need to keep moving. Uh, the second thing that I want you to see from this psalm that I think helps us to, to feel God's love, I want you to see who God brings into Zion. Now, this is verses 4 through 6. So we've seen that God truly does love his people, but this psalm, right, it sort of keeps expanding on that. And we see the true depth of his love when we see who the residents, who God brings in. So you see the list there. And the, right, this may not be, too, it's probably not too shocking uh, to us until we really understand who these people are. But for the original hearers, I think, of this, uh, of this psalm, this would, have, this would have been a big deal, right? All right, so why is that? All right, so Rahab. Rahab is another word for Egypt. All right, so who was who Egypt? Well, Egypt was Israel's first enemy, right? They were enslaved in, in Egypt for 400 years, right, the whole exodus. Babylon, who was that? Babylon was sort of, uh, in the Old Testament, Israel's last big enemy, the one that exiled them, to- came in, destroyed them, and towed it off everybody to their country. Uh, Philistia, right? That's the Philistines. They were the ones, they were sort of near neighbors, and they were the ones that were always fighting against them, right? Um, so what, what you see is that these nations that are listed, the people that God is going to bring in, they're all enemies, They're the ones that hate God's people, that hate God and his people and have said, we're against you. And God says in this psalm, those are the ones I bring in. I bring in the enemies. So do you see how this takes God's love, right, for people? And you just get this experience of it's so much bigger than I thought. Because it's not just that he loves, well, he loves even bad people like Israel. No, he loves his enemies. The people that have looked and said, everything you are about, I am against. And I hate you, and I want you to die, and I want your people to die. Those are the people that God says, they make up Zion. Right? Loving your enemy is not something that you see very often. But when you do, it's amazing. I recently heard a story and I confirmed it. Uh, some of you very well may have heard this one. A uh, story from World War II. Uh, happened December 20th, 1943. Uh, American, American forces are making this sort of bombing mission on Germany. And uh, this one particular uh, B-17, uh, so basically the German forces you know, sort of uh, respond in pretty severe force from the ground, from the air. And so things kind of go sideways. And this one particular B-17 just gets shredded, right? Um, It's got, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's piloted by this guy. This is true enough. Charlie Brown was the pilot. And uh, there were multiple dead on the plane. The plane is shot to pieces. I think it's got like one engine that's working. It is barely able to fly. And it, it's limping, it's just trying to, you know, getting out of the fight, just trying to limp home. And a, uh, a German fighter basically sees this, you know, easy target and just hones in on it, right? This one's trying to get away, going to take him out. Uh, what was his name? Franz Stigler, I think. Uh, and so he bears down on this B-17, he gets right behind it, and he's about to just end it 
right? It would be the easiest thing in the world because it can't defend itself. And he sees what's going on. Like, he could see some of the dead crew. And then this thing is just, it, it's amazing that it's still in the sky. And so what he does is he, I got several illustrations tonight that are going to make me cry. And I'm, I've been nervous about it all day, but this is one of them. So this guy pulls up next to this, he pulls up alongside this plane. And he basically indicates to him, I don't know how he communicated this, but essentially you can land and surrender and I'll protect you. Or, you know, your best chance is to go this way and, and head, you know, this direction to get home. And the, the other pilot, in, uh, the American guy indicates he's, he's not going to land. He's going to try to make it. And so this guy escorts him out of the country. Now look, you got to remember... It's easy to hear that illustration and think like, all oh, right, yeah, you know, like, you know, the Americans are the good guys and the Germans are the bad guys. And, but like, think about this from his perspective, right? Because if you're a German fighter pilot, America is the enemy. They're the people that came to your country and are bombing and killing your people. He, in a sense, had every right to shoot that plane down. But he loved his enemy. But you can watch, oh, you talk about crying. Uh, you can watch, look it up on YouTube. You can watch an interview these two guys meet, like in 1990, obviously years and years later. And they talk and, oh my goodness, it's just beautiful. That's not part of the illustration. But look, this, this is just for free. Look, that's just a taste of what's going on in this passage about how God loves his enemies. He loves and brings in the people that hate him. And I want you to think about this. How can this be a song that God would want his people to sing? Uh, Or how could this be one that they would ever want to sing? About bringing in the enemy. And I think the only way that that's possible is if they really believed what we just said is true in our first point. The only way would be if you really believed that you weren't any different from the enemy. Does that make sense? The only way that you could celebrate the fact that God brings in the enemy is if you're able to identify with the enemy. And so look, have you realized that about yourself yet? Have you realized that everyone, including, including me, including you, was born into this world and we naturally default to seeing God as our enemy? That we, we are against him by our nature. Uh, as one of my former campus ministers used to say, that we naturally flip both middle fingers in God's face. And the reason, in some ways, is fairly simple. It's because God is king, and we don't like that because we want to be king. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do things the way I want to do them. And so look, it may not look like Right? It's probably not consciously saying, like, I declare now that the God of the universe is my enemy. And it probably looks just a lot more like deciding to handle, I'm going to handle money or sex or whatever, fill in the blank. I'm going to handle it the way I want to handle it. Or it might look, it looks like just deciding, uh, thinking that what I have, I have because of my efforts. Thank you very much. But Romans 5.8 says, listen, listen to this. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Right? It's amazing to see the love of a friend for a friend like Brandon and Tanner. Right? That's beautiful. But have you seen that God loves you even though you've declared him to be your enemy? And if you have seen that, right, then that's going to affect how we treat other people. Right? If we know that we were enemies, but we were loved and we were brought in, then we're actually going to be able to look at, at those people a lot differently. And we're going to want to see them brought in too, because we actually look at them and we say, I get that. That's me. Um, so who are those people for you? Who are the people that you just can't, like you probably wouldn't say they're your enemy, but they're the people you just can't stomach. You just don't want any part of. That if they showed up to RUF or your, you know, your thing, that you just, if you're honest, you'd probably be like, oh gosh. Who is it for you, right? I mean, maybe it's the Democrats or maybe it's a Republican or maybe it's people in the Greek system or maybe it's the people not in the Greek system or maybe it's the people in a particular fraternity or sorority. Or maybe it's the homosexual community. Or maybe it's the rich kids. Or maybe it's the poor kids. Maybe it's the TCU fans. Uh, maybe it's non-believers. Maybe it's uh, people in a different denomination that think theologically different from you. Right, but who are, who are the ones that... Yeah. Who are those people? Because if God's love is real, right, if, if this is true, what, what the Bible says, right, then the gospel is going to cause us to look at those people and actually be able to identify. And actually to, to reach out and love our enemy because he's loved us. All right, thirdly and finally, I want you to see how God brings people into Zion. And this is also from verses 4 through 6, and it's actually in each one of the verses. Um, Because not only does God bring in his enemies, but the way in which he does it, it really is astounding. Look, uh, it it pops up in 4, 5, and 6. As God is recording the people, right, making the register of Zion, uh, he says each time, this one was born here. So do you see what he's saying? That God takes someone in, let's say from Babylon, right? The, I mean, the worst of the worst. He takes in an enemy like that. And he basically says, you weren't born in Babylon. You were born here. He gives them an entirely new identity. He gives them an entirely new life. That's not true of you anymore. That's not you. You're an Israelite. You are a a native of Zion. Right? It's a picture of God bringing, of God adopting people into his family. So that they're not who they once were. You're not an enemy. You're a child. You're one of my children. Uh, You've heard me say this, or some of you probably heard this from me before. I realized today as I was thinking about this, I think I got about, about four or five semesters worth of stories and that's it. And now, right, like you're just going to start hearing them again. Sorry. Um, 
if you ever get the chance to go to an adoption hearing, you should take it. Right? Because it'll, it'll be like, oh, it'd be kind of sweet, and I guess it'd be nice to go and show support, but I kind of got some stuff to do. Go. Okay? Because it's beautiful. Right? I've, I've gotten to go to two of these uh, over the last, what, uh, three, four, five years. And they're beautiful because you get to see, right, it, it played out. You see a family that's going to take this child, uh, I mean, typically, almost always, from some sort of not good circumstance, and bring them into their family. And not just, you know, give them a better you know, life than they would have had, but, you know, I mean, not like a member of the family, but make them a actual member of their family, just like one of their own kids. It's a beautiful thing. Um, It's a legal declaration that's made. Uh, Like I said, I've seen two of these. uh, They're both families from our church. And like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to cry through this illustration, but it's so good. Uh, one of the families, and, and some of you probably know this family in our church, um, they have four kids of their own, and they became foster parents, and they got, uh, it's, you know, several years ago, they uh, had these two boys that were placed with them that were brothers, two young boys, and they lived with them for a, a pretty good long while, and eventually they were able to, uh, you know, it worked out where they were going to be able to adopt them. Right? Foster care, you just sort of keep them for a little while. But then it finally worked out. They're going to actually adopt them. And so uh, they go and they, and they tell the boys, right? We're going to adopt you. You're going to be part of our family. Ah, so good. And one of the boys says, right? They hear the news. And then one of the boys says, when do, gosh, it's going to be so hard. When do we get our B names? And the parent says, uh, B names. What? What are you talking about? And uh, the kid says, well, you know, like, right, the other kids, all their kids, their names start with B, like Bo, Bailey, Brady, right? B names. And so the parent says, oh, oh, yeah, right. Well, no, no, you you don't change your first name. You just change your last name, right? Uh, And the kid says, kids say, well, your kids have B names. We won't be names. Like our brothers and sisters. So the parents say, well, okay. Well, what do you want your names to be? And they say, one kid says, I want to be Brooks. Another kid says, I want to be Blaze. And they say, okay. And so they legally changed their last name and their first name. And why did they do that? Right? You get the picture. Because they're saying, you were born here. You're not just coming into our house and going to live sort of like a, you know, like you're just staying for a little while. You were born here. So much so that we're going to change, we're going to give you our identity You're going to be one of us. That's beautiful. And that's what this psalm is showing us. That God loves his enemies in such a way that not only does he just not destroy you. Right? Like the the World War II illustration. That's a beautiful thing. But that guy didn't bring him home to live with him. Right? 
It's still amazing. But God loves his enemies. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just not destroy you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just say, like, you can come in and, like, yeah, you know, take advantage of some of this stuff. He brings you in as his child. And he gives you an entirely new identity, an entirely new life. And he says, you are not who you once were. You are completely different. It's what Jesus talks about in John 3, right? When he talks to Nicodemus, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that if somebody's going to be a part of the kingdom of God, then they have to be born again. And if you, if you know anything about that passage, right, the Greek is sort of, it could go either way. It could be translated born again or born from above. And I think the best understanding is that it, it's ambiguous on purpose. It means both. That if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, then you've got to, you've got to start over. You get to start over. And it's a birth that comes from God. Jesus tells about this reality of a new birth, and it comes from him. That God invites his enemies, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are, regardless of your past history, and he gives you a whole new reality. I just want to end with this thought. How does that happen? Right after he... at the end of that section with Nicodemus, Jesus says, uh, John three fourteen. he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the next verse you've probably heard before says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Right, Jesus, the true Son, the only one that can actually truly say, I was born of Zion. I belong here. The only one that can actually and truly rightly say that gets rejected by God as us so that God can bring us in and say, this one was born here. The exact same thing he says of Jesus. And that's the good news. And that good news is offered to us tonight. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what... Gosh, what good news. The depth of your love, what an amazing thing. How you've loved us in Jesus. Father, would you cause every one of us in here to see that uh, afresh or maybe for the first time tonight. And we ask it in your name. Amen.